0: internal medicine podcast my name is Rithika Kampala and I'm a PGY2 here at UConn, and I'll be your host for today's episode before we begin a quick disclaimer all opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine the content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice So for our second episode of the Palm Grit series, we're going to explore pulmonary hypertension, a condition which affects up to 10% of individuals over 65 years old and at least 50% of patients with heart failure. Today, Dr. Parikh will take us on a deep dive of its pathophysiology and will help clear some of the enigma surrounding it. So without further ado. So to start us off, Dr. Parikh, could you tell us the definition of pulmonary hypertension?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, the definition of pulmonary hypertension actually was recently changed from a mean pulmonary artery pressure obtained over right heart cath from 25 milligrams of mercury to down to 20. And so that's the resting mean pulmonary artery pressure that we use on right heart cath.
0: Excellent. So that being said, could you walk us through the different ways to classify or help understand pulmonary hypertension?
1: Yeah. So, uh, at the bottom line is that we used to sort of think about pulmonary hypertension in terms of historically five groups. WHO, World Health Symposium, had a group one, two, three, four, and five. And more recently, we've been trying to think about pulmonary hypertension from a physiologic standpoint based on invasive hemodynamics obtained from right heart cath. And so when we try and categorize it from that angle, we're looking at what's a precapillary disease. What's post capillary or isolated post capillary, and then what's combined pre and post? And the bottom line there is that we're just trying to see where is the disease originating from? Is it a pre capillary? Is this a lung issue? Is this a vasculature issue, like group one, pulmonary arterial hypertension? Or is this post capillary originating from a left atrium, a left ventricular disease, like HEFPEF and HEFREF? And so we use our invasive hemodynamics during right heart catheterization to really make that determination and the pressure that we're trying to use to define one versus the other is really that wedge pressure uh, and the cutoff that we use is 15.
0: Could you explain a little bit more about PVR, pulmonary vascular resistance and how that plays into our interpretation of pre versus post capillary pulmonary hypertension?
1: Yeah so when we think about pulmonary hypertension you know, a lot of people say, okay, well, the mean pulmonary artery pressure, that has to be greater than 20. That's what defines pH. That's correct. But at the end of the day, uh, we want to know what the resistance is. This is a resistance-driven disease. And the PVR is what we're trying to address with therapy, whether that's with diuretics or with pulmonary hypertension-specific medications. So a lot of people will define pH more as, forget the pressure. This is a resistance-driven disease. The resistance is what defines Uh, what's going on so if you think about the definition or the calculation of pulmonary vascular resistance that's your mean pa pressure minus your wedge pressure which is an estimate of your left-sided disease or post-capillary disease divided by your cardiac output so when we think about it if we're thinking about a pre-capillary ph patient that by definition is a patient who has an elevated mean pa pressure above 20 a wedge pressure less than 15 and therefore, if you do the math out, they should have a cardiac, they should have a cardiac output that's let's say normal, and their PVR should be greater than two Woods units if you go by the latest ERS ESC guidelines, or WHO classification is greater than three Wood units. And then if you look at it the flip side of it, and if you're saying a post-capillary pH patient, this is your HEF-PEF with RV dysfunction, you're gonna have an elevated mean PA pressure above 20 but now you're gonna have a wedge pressure above 15, let's say 18. And then you take that calculation for PVR and you divide out the cardiac output and you're gonna see that your PVR is actually not elevated. That by definition is a post capillary pH patient. And then of course the most common is gonna be something that's combined pre and post. Their mean PA is elevated, their wedge pressure is elevated, Yet their PVR is also elevated. So w- teasing out what is the pre-capillary component, what's the post-capillary component can be a little tricky.
0: That actually sets up pretty well into the next segment. And since we already discussed how some of the invasive hemodynamics can indicate whether we're a pre or post-capillary picture, could you walk us through the pathophysiology of both processes and how they relate to the WHO classifications?
1: Yeah, I, that's you know that's a really good question, and it kind of also touches on what are the signs and symptoms of pulmonary hypertension, too. So, you know, if we go back to pulmonary hypertension being a resistance-driven disease, then then that patient with elevated PA pressures in their pulmonary artery is obviously going to have a high pulmonary vascular resistance. That high pulmonary vascular resistance translates to an increase in right ventricular afterload. The RV, thin-walled, it's very malleable, unlike the left ventricle. So, the minute the right ventricle has to deal with any sort of increase in afterload, it's going to change its morphology, it's going to dilate, it's going to lose its function. And so in the face of that increased RV afterload, the right ventricle becomes starts to remodel. It's going to have what we see, increased RV pressure load, increased RV wall thickness. As a result, the contractility will drop and then you're dilated. And now you're pushing over that interventricular septum towards the left ventricle. We're trying to preserve your cardiac output. At some point, pulmonary hypertension will transition from a compensated phase to a decompensated phase. And these are the patients coming into the hospital, into the ICU, now with low blood pressures, with cardiac outputs that are low, with a lactate that's elevated. So that's kind of your classic how pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension can translate and develop into this increased RV afterload that eventually causes RV failure and decompensated RV disease. In post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, you're dealing with a cardiomyopathy. You're dealing with thick walls of the heart, dilated cardiac failure, where your walls are too thick, your squeeze of your heart is somewhat compromised, the heart doesn't fill very well. As a result, you have an increased right atrial pressure. As a result, you have an increased wedge pressure. And over time, that's going to cause vascular remodeling and an increase in your PA pressures. But when you do the math out based on your catheterization report, you're going to see that there's no, there's no increase in your actual PVR.
0: So with that being said, I think it's fair to assume that patients with pulmonary hypertension or at least decompensated pulmonary hypertension oftentimes present with similar signs and symptoms of our heart failure patients. And so we'll typically get echoes for them and we'll notice that their PA systolic pressures are above 25, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is the number that we pay attention to, which kind of gives us an indication of an underlying disease process. So once we get the elevated PASP, I'm assuming we send them for a right heart cath. And what does the rest of their workup look like from that point?
1: Yeah, and I think this kind of circles back to why we still use the WHO classifications, even though we're trying to categorize pulmonary hypertension more based on pathophysiology. And so once a diagnosis of precapillary pulmonary hypertension is established, we should really start looking for why. You know, if you are pretty convinced that there's no component of diastolic heart disease, then you really want to go through your WHO classifications one through five and think about some of the causes. So if we recap those, you know, WHO group one is your true pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is disease of the vasculature. Most commonly here, we think about connective tissue disease, scleroderma or Crest syndrome, holds a pretty poor prognosis with PAH, lupus, a lot of the rheumatologic diseases that you can think of. But group one in and of itself is a little bit of a mixed bag. You not only have the connective tissue diseases, you have drug-induced or IV drug use, amphetamines. You can have portopulmonary hypertension, which is a big deal in our cirrhotics, especially when we work towards uh, working them up for transplant. And then, you know, idiopathic or, or heritable disease as well, So generally, when it comes to WHO group one, I'll send a panel of autoimmune labs, maybe an HIV test, maybe I'll get an abdominal ultrasound with Doppler to make sure there's no underlying cirrhosis. Group two, we'll skip over since that's post capillary pH, you know, and then we'll get into group three and group four. So group three pulmonary hypertension is something that is driven by hypoxia. We think about classically hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, patients who are chronically hypoxic. Their body responds to sort of appropriately fix their VQ mismatch by constricting their pulmonary vasculature. That constriction of pulmonary vasculature over time will cause an increase in PVR, and that will result in pulmonary hypertension. In group three, we really think of anybody with parenchymal lung disease. That can range from emphysema to lung fibrosis to NSIP, ILD. And then, of course, is our sleep apnea patients who are chronically hypoxic at night, especially if they're not having their OSA addressed. And then group four is chronic clot or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension or CTEF. Along with group one PAH, it's the most commonly underdiagnosed or missed cause of pulmonary hypertension and I would say this is an interesting field because it can range from patients who have had completely asymptomatic clot episodes. Usually those are patients who are younger with clotting history like factor V Leiden and they'll eventually just present with RV failure and then you'll end up retrospectively kind of diagnosing them with chronic blood clots. And on the flip side is our patients who are coming in with intermediate and high-risk pulmonary embolisms who we sometimes will reach for more advanced therapies such as ECOS or catheter directed therapy or Inari in hopes of preventing the development of CTEF down the line. And then group five is a hodgepodge of disease. Uh, you know, it has patients who are on dialysis, but honestly, you know, we all know that these ESRD patients on dialysis have chronically elevated wedge pressures, so they're kind of multifactorial in that sense. Sarcoidosis fits into group five as well, but again, we know that sarcoid can involve lung parenchyma and cause group three phenomenon type of PH. It can be cardiac involvement, so you can have more of a cardiac sarcoid. And then at the end of the day, it really behaves like group one physiology, in where you have granulomatous infiltration of the pulmonary vasculature. And even though it's categorized as group five sarcoid, is it's actually more like a PAH type physiology. So when we think about these different groups, one through five, that's really where our workup comes into play. I alluded to autoimmune labs and abdominal ultrasound with Doppler. For group three, everybody should get a sleep study. You know, we definitely want PFTs in particular. We want to see what their FVC is, their DLCO. Does that make us think that they may have an underlying lung, parenchymal lung disease like an ILD? So we might want to go ahead and get a CAT scan if the x-ray is not normal. And then group five, you know, it's not a lot of screening or testing that we do, but it is something that we want to keep in the back of our mind if they have any of those risk factors.
0: So now that we've diagnosed and worked up our patient with pulmonary hypertension, what do you think are some of the best ways to prognosticate both their survival and or mortality?
1: Yeah, the prognosis of pulmonary hypertension and risk stratification turns out to be really important. Not only just to provide the patients and their families with really realistic expectations as to what their disease course may be, but more so to help guide therapy, to be honest with you. you know We have limited options in terms of treatment, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but we want to be able to get a patient as quickly and as efficiently as possible to a low-risk prognostic factor. And so whatever risk stratification tool you use, you know, the more recent ones are ESC and ERS guidelines where they have low, intermediate, high, intermediate, low, and high. Or if you want to use something like Reveal, Reveal 2.0, Reveal Light 2.0, the bottom line is, is, you know, we talk about this all the time is you have to use something. And in fact there was a registry of uh, pH patients about 3,000 and above where, and don't quote me on the exact numbers, but some of the pH specialists were surveyed. They were asked, how often do you use a risk stratification tool? And about 50% said they don't use it after the first visit. And I think that's Probably where we are lacking in our approach to pH patients is that we may come up with a treatment plan, but if that patient is declining, we want to be able to identify that decline more objectively than subjectively, and we have to be able to reverse course and change our therapy based on that decline. So other factors that are really incorporated into these prognostic tools, I'm not going to go through each one, but ProBNP at a uvolemic, ProBNP definitely has a factor our six-minute walk distance. I know that seems quite subjective, and it depends on how far the patient may have walked from the parking garage to your clinic, but that is a major factor. And then there's a lot of other findings like echocardiographic findings, TAPSI, or your PASP, your estimated PA systolic pressure divided by your TAPSI, or, you know, cardiac MRI findings for RVEF and RV stroke volume. And then, of course, your right heart cath hemodynamics, like right atrial pressure, cardiac index, and things like that.
0: So, at this point, we We've met a patient with signs and symptoms of heart failure. We've diagnosed them with pH. We've had a way to prognosticate them. The big question is, what do we do to treat these patients? And I know that it's really going to depend on what the underlying cause is. If you could quickly walk us through the differences in management based on their cause of pH, that would be great.
1: Yeah, I think you kind of hit the main message, which is you want to understand the why. You want to make sure you have a good understanding of the precapillary component, is there a post-capillary component? If it's all pre-capillary disease, are you dealing with a chronic hypoxic type of patient such as ILD or emphysema? Are you dealing with a group 1 PAH such as scleroderma? Is this something like CTEF, which you know obviously has some surgical options for therapy as well? I would say that first and foremost, getting a good understanding of how sick that patient is, like we said, with risk- stratification is very important but even in patients with group 1 PAH such as connective tissue disease related PAH in the asymptomatic patient we know based on studies that those patients even when they're asymptomatic should be treated to help prevent progression of disease and help prevent the development of symptoms. So generally, in those patients, we'll take an oral PAH medication approach. A lot of the studies came out more recently that dual combination therapy is preferred over monotherapy. One of the landmark trials was AMBITION, where we looked at a use of a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. That's your classic Tadalafil or Sildenafil. AMBITION used Tadalafil in specific because it was once daily dosing, and combined that with an endothelin receptor antagonist, and that was their approach in terms of preventing progression of disease. I think monotherapy still has a a role in PAH, I would say that is your very mild PH in an asymptomatic connective tissue disease patient. That's where I'm like, all right, let me just get something in their system, help prevent them from having any progression of disease and any development of symptoms or shortness of breath down the line. And then we start reaching for our third class of therapy. So we talked about phosphodiesterase inhibitors. That works on your nitric oxide pathway. Talked about endothelin receptor antagonists. Those are the medications that end in entin. And that's your endothelin pathway. And then we have our prosocycline pathway. That's probably where our biggest decision tree is because the prosocycline pathway has oral options, has inhaled options, and has more advanced therapy options like intravenous and subcutaneous. I would say that after the increased trial, which looked at PHILD in specific, these chronically hypoxic patients with lung fibrosis, with combined pulmonary fibrosis with emphysema, NSIP, so on and so forth, The increased trials show that there is a great utility of using inhaled therapy in this subpopulation of patients. And then we all know that the advanced therapies like intravenous and subcutaneous come into play when we're dealing with that decompensated RV failure, that patient with a, a low cardiac index. Someone who's having syncope and pre-syncope at home. Someone who you don't feel like you have enough time to get them on pills and inhaler, or get them to gold dose because their prognosis is so poor, maybe two to three months without more immediate intervention. And then lastly is, of course, CTEF. All those medications that we kind of talked about probably get some play in the CTEF population more off-label For example, if you have a patient who's got severe pH by numbers, by pulmonary vascular resistance, their cardiac index is 1.5, and it turns out that it's all driven by chronic blood clots, well, that patient's not going to be a candidate for surgery unless we bring down their PA pressures, unless we optimize them for surgery. But of course, there is surgical options available for CTEF. Not only is there open heart surgery, which is PTE or pulmonary thromboendarterectomy. That's a very subspecialized surgery in that cardiothoracic surgeons and 15-20 centers in the country who really are good at doing that. And you know, here at Hartford, we don't perform that surgery, or here in Connecticut, we really don't. But we have a lot of good centers around us, both at Mass General, Temple, even down to you know DC and the Virginia area. But if a patient is, let's say, not a good candidate for open heart surgery, going on pump and bypass for PTE, maybe they're a little bit more advanced in their age. We do have a little less invasive options, and one particular option is balloon pulmonary angioplasty. This is sequential dilation of the pulmonary artery over time, ends up being about two to three sessions. Patients just get femoral access as if they're getting a, a large sheath placed in their in their venous system. And through that, you know, they get balloon angioplasty sometimes two to three times, like I said. So a lot of different surgical options for these patients. But at the same time, for CTEF, you still need to be able to treat the high PVR. You sometimes definitely have to use pills. Rio which is a type of nitric oxide pathway agent is particularly well validated based on large studies in the CTEF population, but we end up having to add on adjunct therapy, which like I said is quote-unquote off-label, but the whole goal is to get them to a point where they can undergo further more advanced and definitive therapy too.
0: Thank you for your time and expertise, Dr. Preek. Whether you're meeting a patient after their formal diagnosis or admitting them for an episode of acute decompensated heart failure, hopefully it's now clear when to consult pulmonology and what to make of the right heart cath numbers when you get them. That's all we have for you guys. Stay curious and until next time.